Hey everybody, um, I'm going to talk a little bit quieter for this episode. I'm in a house right now where the other residents go to sleep pretty early, so if this is a lullaby-friendly podcast episode and you fall asleep, I totally understand. And if it's annoyingly quiet as if we're having this conversation in the library, then I hope you understand. Might as well try a different tone of voice and just see how it resonates. Let me know what you think. Separating emotions from circumstance. My sleep was restless. I had to heat the van and myself and my fig tree, Wilson, and the guitar four times under the cold stars. Whatever dream was providing welcome escape from these frigid foothills evaporated each time I awoke, leaving me forced to confront the heavy workload and heavy heart waiting for me in cold consciousness. Each time, I would barely wake up just enough to notice that I wasn't remotely comfortable. I'd crawl into the cockpit, turn the key, and gently touch Wilson's leaves just to see how he was feeling. I'd sit there, hunched over, waiting until the van was stuffed with hot air before turning it off and then going back to sleep. The next morning, as the sun quickly warmed the desolate Wyoming landscape, my throat was scratchy and my chest heavy. I was just getting started, and somehow this whole thing felt like I was about to burn out. Everything I needed to do to survive was taking too much energy. The days are short. I'm sleeping in a climactic roller coaster. Wilson had lost another leaf that night, and even the greenest leaves looked like they were about to begin negotiations with death. This wasn't sustainable, I thought. I needed to get south. I need to stay healthy. I stifled the cough and willed myself to pack up the van in record time. The longer I was on the road, the farther I could make it. As I rolled down the dirt road back to the highway, puffy-eyed and stiff, I thought about my very loose vision for what comes next. Twenty years earlier, I had briefly lived in Colorado Springs, from when I was 12 until 16 years old. Today it feels brief, but back then it felt like eternity. I spent nearly four years waiting to move back to Canada. I subconsciously avoided deep friendship because I didn't want to experience the heartbreak of getting ripped away from a meaningful life again, the way it had felt when we had moved down there. I wanted to revisit this town now and examine my memories and the people in them from a more confident and grateful perspective. What had I missed while I had been shrouded in teenage angst and lonely sadness? What would I recall now? How could I reclaim and reframe parts of my story and learn from any raw, lingering memories? We tend to put a massive emphasis on digging into our childhoods in order to explain who we are today. Most of us spend time in therapy chairs, sifting through experiences and heartache, wondering where the absentee parents were, even if they had lived in the same house. We confronted our first romantic rejections, tensions with teachers, and missed opportunities that we felt like we were owed. And then, and then what? Well, we feel better for having found the words and courage to talk about it at all. We feel a little bit more aware of how we got here. And then we drift away from the chair, the tea, the tissues, and we go back to our lives. Yes, we need to examine our past, but only so that we can get out of it and back into the present and thrust ourselves forward into a future that resonates. Start noticing where the sadness and most miserable people spend most of their time. Replaying the stories of what happened, drowning in the details and controlled by the context. Without becoming the architect of our future, every moment of the present is sacrificed to the silent sorrows of the past. I had loosely stayed in touch with one friend from middle school, Ian, who now lived in Denver. No doubt unknowingly, he had been a beacon of positivity and support while I had lived there. 
Back then, he had clearly stood out from his peers in terms of creativity, passion, confidence, and desire for connection. In his early 20s, he'd hitchhiked through all 50 states and written a book about it, The Wild Curly Hair, which had inspired me to grow up my own at that time, embodied a part of him that would always remain untamed. As an important childhood friend and a seasoned writer and former nomad, I knew that we would have so much to talk about. I wanted to know who he was now, how he remembered me then, and what advice and ideas he has that might improve my future. Similarly, I'd had a teacher in 8th grade, an English teacher that had made a substantial impact on my life through her daily philosophical monologues to the class and a choice few conversations when she felt compelled to pull me aside. Though I wasn't much of a student, I always enjoyed the meandering lectures and deeper wisdom, unlike anything I'd ever seen from another teacher, before or since. And even when I fell short of clear expectations, she had shown me a respect and encouragement that I hadn't experienced before. She chose conversation rather than reprimand, and it mattered. More than I realized at the time, I was listening when she spoke. I was attentive to her choices. As it is with kids, so it is with adults, and such a distinction is often unnecessary. We don't know when someone is paying attention to us. We don't know what they are learning from us. They might not realize they're learning from us either. Not only are we shaping others through our actions, but we are shaping how they treat us, how they treat themselves. We are giving each other guidelines for what constitutes normal. But confronting the weight of your own actions need not lead to an existential crisis. It means we are more powerful than we realize, both to tweak our own lives and then nudge others in a positive direction. It means criticism and judgment of both self and others, it becomes less necessary and less useful. Because how we hold ourselves is how others will hold us. And if they like the resulting experience with us, they'll hold themselves a little bit more that way too. This is the silent dialogue of connection and respect. Mrs. Esmiel was responsible for a disproportionate percentage of my vocabulary and, for better or for worse, my meandering sentence structure. But she also provided a platform for me to begin developing a sense of self-worth. I wanted to find her, even though she must be in her 80s by now, and show gratitude for what, to her, were ordinary actions that, to me, had extraordinary impacts. I had no contact information for her and I couldn't find much online, but I'd find her. In 2019, I had once managed to find an article about her latest philanthropic accomplishments, and in the photo I could see a clarity in her eyes that told me she was still alive in every possible way, and that she would be for many more years. Since the last day of her class, I had told myself that I would, one day, come back and let her know what had become of me, and thank her for being an integral part of my eternal evolution. The goals of meaningful reconnection with a friend and a teacher, they motivated me to keep driving south and shrug off this heaviness that seemed hell-bent on grinding me to dust. I will alchemize my sadness into gratitude. While the architectural drawings for my new future were still barely sketched, my crumbled past had long fallen into disrepair, and I intended to restore it first. As I turned back onto the highway ramp, I rubbed my eyes and made the scheduled call to my friend Alex from California. When this whole adventure began, I had almost planned to go straight to LA, to her, until the gift of the van had been dropped in my lap and the itinerary completely changed. Alex speaks from the heart, grapples gracefully with a swift current of lessons always available to her. She speaks of mindfulness, compassion, and community. We had connected online and had not yet met in person. She wanted to hear how my trip was going so far, and regardless of my teacher's efforts to amass in me a respectable vocabulary, 
I could sense myself unable to really articulate much at all. I was just tired. I was disconnected from myself or something, and so I had little to give to anyone else. Plus, I had warned my friends that my communication would be irregular and limited. It was the ultimate glorification of avoidance or a healthy reflective reclusion. I couldn't be sure. I had requested this emotional distance from people partially because I needed to get more acquainted with longer stretches of solitude, and partly because I didn't want to get stuck in those comfortable roles and conform to existing expectations in those relationships. I needed space to change without the relational bungee cord snapping me back into a former state. Yes, I felt alone, and no, I didn't want to talk to anyone. It was great to hear Alex's voice, but my internal brain signals were stronger than the cell service, and after a patchy call, I settled into a moody silence. Caleb's thoughts about being addicted to music were interesting. It might have even been an offhand comment, but I thought it was brilliant. I always had had music playing. I've played in bands for 15 years. I have AirPods at the gym, headphones while I walk, and a Bluetooth speaker while I'm reading. I have soundtracks for parks and parties. My favorite songs remind me of my favorite places. I sleep with music playing. But I had never considered that maybe I was afraid of silence. Or, stranger yet, that I was perhaps physiologically or emotionally addicted to sonic and melodic inputs. I had always thought I was just enjoying the songs. After only about 10 minutes of silence, except for the whistling of some corners of the van that lacked aerodynamic qualities at highway speeds, and the rattling of the clumsy stacked plates in the cupboard behind me, a Honda Civic suddenly slowed down in the fast lane beside me and the driver made eye contact. I was already used to people staring at the slow party on wheels, especially with a bonsai tree getting the front row seat on my dashboard, but this seemed a little less gawking, a little bit more urgent. I rolled down my window. Hey man, he called. You've got a flat tire there. He gave me a sad smile. Sorry, as one of the fingers pointed to my driver's side front wheel. Fuck. My stomach dropped. My palms got sweaty. This was emotional effort I'd been wasting and dreading. From the moment I was offered the van, I started thinking about breakdowns, flats, risks, and expenses. But I didn't think disaster would strike on day two. Was this going to happen frequently, or was this just bad luck? I took a few deep breaths. I had already noticed that Hober was pulling to one side, but it was a windy day. A timely sign told me that the next town, Casey, Wyoming, was 10 miles away. I know what a completely blown tire feels like, so I knew this was a slow leak. I couldn't solve the physics of whether there was a benefit to speeding up to get there faster, or if slowing down would somehow keep more air in the tire. Would higher speeds actually keep the air in? Perhaps. I don't know. Without an answer, I didn't adjust my speed, but my thoughts accelerated past me down the highway. Is there going to be a tire shop in Casey? I could inflate it and keep driving a little further to the larger city of Casper, but it was a gamble if the leak was bad and I definitely didn't want to get stuck on the highway. Would I need a new tire? How long would I be stuck waiting for it? Did this van even have a spare? I had no idea. Those aren't the kind of questions I ask before they matter. Even as I felt entirely out of control, I tried to remember that I am in control of my emotions and my physiology if I want to be. We all have that choice. Emotions tell us important information about our physical experience, and we usually have a few going at once. To the untrained inner ear, it can feel like there are many songs playing at the same time and often loudly. We can learn to turn them down to a listenable level and pick out each melody individually, but these are practiced skills. Emotional regulation is one of the most powerful techniques we can learn, and it often replaces external crutches that we've been using just to feel okay. 
Being responsible for and working through your own emotions will allow you to become emotionally self-sufficient. The first step is to realize that your emotions show up as physical sensations. Tense muscles, clenched jaw, a pit in your stomach, tightness in your chest. They're different for everyone. The hack here is important. Start by soothing your physical experience. Drop your shoulders, stretch, most importantly, take deep breaths. While you're doing that, speak non-contextual truths to yourself. I am capable. I am powerful. I am intelligent. I am accepted. I am love. I am enough. I am safe. I have what I need and this experience is an opportunity. These things are true, but they often get muddied and muddled by the circumstance. Of course, this doesn't make your problems go away, although sometimes it actually does just from the reminder. But a calm body leads to a quiet mind, which allows you to put problems into sharper focus and see their true size. I mean, even when you're saying these affirmations, which ones don't feel true right now? Notice that. Is your emotional response proportionate to the actual problem at hand? Will this conflict that you're in destroy you? What do you need to do next? Who knows how to solve this? Boom. Your curiosity is back and it's time to roll up your sleeves and realize that where you thought you were a victim, you actually just have new choices to make. Over time, this process feels less like dragging yourself through a war zone and more like a tentative dance. It gets easier, quicker, and then suddenly you're using your emotions the way they were meant to be used for your benefit and for the benefit of others. So I calm myself down. Flat tires happen all the time. I have AMA. I have nowhere specifically I even need to be. Nobody is getting bankrupted by a flat tire. If I get stuck, I'll read a book. I can do this. By the time I pulled into the gas station in the no-stoplight town of Casey, the tire was slouching at less than half capacity, but I felt full. I actually grinned when I saw the out-of-order sign on the air pump. Adventure, I thought. I'd completely reframed my anxiety into excitement. When I asked the gas attendant what my next best hope in town was, she had to think for far too long before suggesting the tire shop four blocks away. Hober limped us the whole way there, and luckily there was an air compressor outside Tom's tires, hissing gently, even on the Lord's Day of Rest. Nobody was there. Nobody was anywhere. These days, only ghosts were born in Casey. Once I'd pumped the tire back to 55 PSI, I decided to wait one hour before driving so I could see how it held pressure. I wanted to make sure that I could make it to the next big city for a better chance at a replacement tire or same-day repair. While I waited, I stopped in at the only open restaurant, Invasion Bar, which, to me, was a dive bar in a dive town, but I couldn't be sure what the local perception was. I hoped that they were proud of it, and I guessed that they were, since it was the only place open on Sunday. On the front door was a sign that told you to get lost if you're afraid of COVID. The bar stools and decorations looked like they'd been undusted there for 60 years. The gray-green carpet was worn to the point of obsolescence. There's a blue Bud Light branded light, but it was dim and not in a moody way. You could buy cigarettes, Trump hats, and peanuts off the shelf behind the bar. You were in the right place if you were looking for a red and white bumper sticker for $1 that read, Casey, Wyoming, three bars, four churches, one hooker, and a nice cemetery. I wanted to meet the hooker, but I didn't have the guts to ask for details, and I doubted the cemetery was that nice. Pictures, stickers, posters, and guns cluttered the walls without the slightest apology to interior designers everywhere. The Live Edge wooden bar was etched by a Dremel with what I surmised to be all the ranch brands in the area, and it was carefully lacquered to seal them for the ages. 
I wondered if a new ranch could ever be added or if this was just for old school cowboys only. Maybe there was no such thing as a new ranch here anymore anyway. Invasion Bar was empty except for a rugged, overweight cowboy who sat in the middle seat at the bar and he didn't even remotely acknowledge my existence when I chose a stool three down from him. A stocky woman, aged in what I would call mid-fifties, though she could have been in her forties, sidled over with a laminated menu and placed it gently in front of me. What will you be drinking? she asked kindly, glancing at my knitted toque. She couldn't possibly know I hadn't removed it in four days, right? I tried locating the beer list on the menu and then scanned the taps to see what my options were. That was enough for her to size me up. Ah, okay, the froofy beers are in the cooler down there. Go see what you like and help yourself. I was being judged for not drinking Budweiser or Kokanee, and I think I was okay with that. I returned to the menu. What makes the Invasion Burger different from a regular burger, I asked, as she waited for me to place an order. There was nothing else for her to do, it seemed. Nothing. It's just a burger and you're eating it at Invasion Bar, she said wryly. I chuckled. Fair enough. I didn't like that I was spending $16 on this, but navigating a flat tire felt like a reason enough to cut myself some slack. I'd become so used to eating out for the past eight years, but now I knew that I didn't have enough money for regular restaurant excursions. Old habits die when you murder the old version of you. Your old goals, your old boundaries, your old normal, your old crutches. Even when a finger is resting on the trigger, it can still be hard to pull it. Dying is one thing, but do you have the courage to kill? I didn't have much appetite after all, and the burger wasn't something I'd stake the name of my bar on. I drank most of the Belgian moon without enjoying it and left the rest. It tasted off, but I wasn't about to be that guy, wearing it too, complaining about the quality of the meat while surrounded by cattle ranches. Why was I miserable? Was it the flat tire? The loneliness? Low energy? Am I missing home? I didn't feel like I was bothered this much by any of it, but my body was on the edge anyway. I paid the bill and walked back to Hober. The pressure had declined from 55 to 45, which I thought wasn't too bad. I pumped it slightly too full and drove an hour to the tire shop in Casper. Like everything else, it too was closed on Sunday. There were some baseball diamonds a couple blocks away, and at this time of year, America's pastime was past its prime. With plenty of vacant parking, I strategically maneuvered into a wide open area that was obscured from passing traffic. For the next 20 minutes, I just sat there and did nothing. Doing nothing while sitting in a moving car is still doing something, but now my thoughts, body, and geographic location were all stationary. Resting or stuck, I still couldn't be sure. I was willing myself to begin the begrudging work of once again settling in for a cheap dinner and a cold night, now with a tired tire. Was this my life now? Parking lots, heavy thoughts, and a chill I can't shake? This is not what I had imagined. The nocturnal transition was becoming routine. Bump, scrape, move the bike, reorganize, tedious cooking and silent eating. Then, for dessert, I sit, paralyzed, not sure what to do or where the energy to do it would come from. This time, I smoked a joint. Pound cake, given to me by Connor as a parting gift, and though it smelled absolutely wonderful, it offered no solace or inspiration. Now I was just a fat bumblebee with wings too tired to achieve flight, still with an incessant buzzing of biological imperative to find either flower or hive. Do something. Be something. Once the van was converted into sleep mode, I acquiesced to the physical demand for unconsciousness. I had thought that the evenings would offer a cozy, warm environment for my mind to come alive. I had all these books I wanted to read. 
I'd envisioned writing for hours. Instead, here I was in a mobile prison of eternal sluggish transience. Though the makeshift perch each night was novel, and the landscape was slowly evolving, the same rhythm of exhaustion incapacitated feelings of progress. Sleep was the only easy thing I could do. Early the next morning, the tire was fixed in less time and for less money than my fears had predicted, and this emboldened me that I would be more capable and confident for whatever obstacle I would next encounter. I was back on the road with a full day to move closer towards warmer nights. There are parts of Montana and Wyoming that are captivating. Yellowstone National Park, Grand Teton, the Lewis and Clark Caves come to mind, chock full of colorful rocks and minerals, geothermic performances, and the opportunity to finally learn the difference between stalagmites and stalactites. But all these treasures are nestled in the mountains and not on the way to Colorado whatsoever. So instead, I was surrounded by bland expanses of tough grass, shrubs, and clay soils. The mountains are softened with age, lumps of slightly melted ice cream. Nothing like the rugged, snow-capped peaks farther north. Most of the license plates that passed me in Wyoming were from other states. According to everyone else, this was apparently a place that you passed through, and I had to agree. Later that night, when I arrived in Fort Collins, Colorado, I was spent. My muscles were tight. The heavy chest was now accompanied by a cough that clutched my lungs. Despite my best efforts to drink enough water, my head was pounding. The 10-day forecast here was looking sunny during the days, and the nights were mottled with either frost or unseasonal warmth. Instead of constantly changing locations each day, I decided that I'd stay in the same town and rest a while. Another baseball diamond parking lot, but this time, the baseball diamond was equipped with a bathroom, and it had a little space between two sheds for me to store my bike and other supplies out of view. That night was the first time I felt like I wouldn't freeze, I wasn't cramped, and I could just sleep as long as I needed to to feel better. I stayed there for a couple nights and spent the days liquidating superfluous supplies, properly stocking the fridge and pantry, and choosing between a slow walk and a short nap. I wasn't meeting anyone. When I discovered downtown Fort Collins with its sprawling boulevard of restaurant, coffee shops, clothing stores, and patios, I realized I wanted to find a place to sleep near there to make the days a little livelier without needing to drive. I found a retail building that was undergoing substantial renovation, which left its parking lot largely unattended. A gas station across the street would provide plumbing until 10pm each night. I hid my bike in a bush and congratulated myself on recent accomplishments in purging several unnecessary items. Still, I kept the soda stream even though I hadn't found anywhere to exchange the CO2 canisters yet. If we look at the parts of our lives that we spend the most time negotiating with, navigating through, or making choices about, we'll likely find the greatest source of our friction and stress. This isn't a bad thing, as long as our goal is to keep moving through the friction rather than getting stuck in eternal effort. It was a small relief for me to see a gentle transition from chaos and indecision to automatic choices and repeatability. The van itself was starting to take shape. In drive mode, the bed was folded into a seat, making enough space to lean the bike frame against the kitchen cupboards. The guitar and blue Tupperware box were placed on the floor. My shoes, still too many shoes. But what if I needed cowboy boots? They were all stuffed under the passenger seat. My coat hung neatly over its backrest, my far too opulent Toomey laptop bag resting on its seat. All the dishes and food had home in the cupboards and the clothes were paired, folded, stacked in the back storage area. My dress shirts and some festival garb, because you never know, were hung on hangers. 
In the trunk, my blue sleeping pad, sheet, and gray 25-pound weighted blanket were satisfyingly all rolled up together until they resembled an off-color decadent jelly roll cake, one of those things that Safeway always has and nobody except grandmas ever buy. Sleep mode meant the guitar moved to the front seat, the bike and Tupperware were ejected to the outdoors, and the seat was folded flat. Then, the whole bed could be unrolled perfectly in seconds. Beside where my head would rest was a typical brown cardboard box filled mostly with books, journals, highlighters, pens, and likely many other things I wouldn't need but hadn't found the motivation to unpack and sift through. Every house has a shit drawer and this was my shit box. All I knew for sure is it was largely sentimental items and this wasn't the time to let myself go there yet. Resting in Fort Collins gave me a few days for my mind to think about other things, which can be useful or dangerous. I called a few friends from home and started talking with my mom. I looked at finances. My savings weren't where I'd wanted them to be prior to leaving, and I wish I'd had more time to prepare. I wish I'd had better spending habits during the years of making more than I knew how to manage. Did I just say spending habits? I mean saving habits. See? The furniture in Calgary I was trying to sell for heavy discounts wasn't selling, and the residual income from real estate deals would be sparse. Anxiety started to creep in when I combined the feeble finances with the crushing uncertainty about the future. Every time I turned on the van to heat it, that cost money. Every meal was a debit from the bank account. The balance seemed to be committed to a singular trajectory, and I knew I didn't have enough to make it even six months. I started paying attention at the grocery store. What's on sale? Which brand is cheaper? Which grocery store is in the lower income area? Which chain has the lowest prices? I hadn't thought like this in years and I was embarrassed at how difficult fiscal conservatism had become. I managed to charm a girl that worked at the gym's front desk into giving me a seven day trial. And by charm, I mean, I asked her how her day was going and requested a drop in price. And she said, great, thanks. And recommended me the free trial. Nice. I now had access to a week of exercise and, more importantly, showers. When I go to the gym, I don't have leg day or back day or anything like that. I have body day. No one's getting left out. Everyone's welcome. Stretch, row, chin-ups, leg press, bench, arms, core. After straining through my first gym workout in a month, I hit the showers. We've all gone four or five days without a shower, and as I took off my clothes, getting totally naked all at once for the first time since Bozeman, I was surprised to report that I didn't stink. I jumped in the shower and let out a deep sigh. My head dropped and I watched the hot water trail down my body. Showers after a few hard days are the ones we remember. Wow, I've lost weight, I muttered, examining how quickly I'd deteriorated since leaving Canada. I didn't need to lose weight. I'd mostly been too skinny, and as a kid I was far too skinny. The only time I'd ever needed to lose weight was after this previous winter, when you could find me drinking up to, but never more than, a bottle of wine, most nights. That drinking wasn't something that I thought was okay, but it was uncoincidentally during the same period of time that I was dating two women, transparently and honestly, whose only similarities most days were that, like me, they were constantly confronting insecurities and, like me, loved wine. So we drank together and discussed our insecurities. And on the few nights I carved out alone, my mind and emotions were so overactive from trying to process double the interpersonal experiences that I constantly chose two crutches in order to keep moving forward. It was like taking an Advil to keep running in a race. 
I used the wine to calm my anxiety that I'd struggled with for years and the weed to expand the empathy and allow me to extract resonant truths. I would then meditate, walk, or write for hours. What I didn't know was that my brain was going through a massive reorganization due to some of the epiphanies I'd experienced the summer before, and so I was both extremely capable and entirely overwhelmed. More on that another time. It might sound unhealthy or destructive, and in a way it was, but it was also beautiful. I wrote extraordinary prose and scribbled mind-bending ideas that the next day I couldn't believe had come from my brain. My deep states of mind-altered reflection accelerated my ability to understand and work through insecurities and efficiently learn new skills that allowed me to show up more compassionately to others. Most people have vices that allow them to check out. I used mine to check in. Destructive? Possibly. Productive? Oh, absolutely. I wasn't trying to escape, I was trying to take the edge off the emotions with substances, but this was how I turned down the volume so that I could hear the songs clearly. And when late spring started to shine a little bit more daylight on my swollen belly and skinny arms and broken heart, it took less than two months before I was in great shape again. The only thing more active than my metabolism was my mind, and all of the rest of that summer, I set to work learning about how to become emotionally self-sufficient without dependence on liquids and smoke. This, in my opinion, is a useful trajectory of any crutch we are drawn to. It shows us where the potential lies. The strengths of the crutch we lean on show us the weaknesses we are grappling with. And so we learn how to cultivate strength accordingly without ingestion. Cannabis taught me empathy. Ketamine shows us how to relax. They call alcohol liquid courage. MDMA encourages confidence and joy. Mushrooms remind us of humility and connectedness. I don't know what TV teaches us, but I'm guessing nothing is useful. But regardless, the goal is to realize that those higher qualities and coping skills are available to us without external influence. If we can explore how to embody them well enough, we can release the teacher. I pump the soap into my hands, lingering much longer than necessary in the shower. I always smell random soaps first just to make sure I like the scent I'm signing up for, but it's not like I had any alternatives. Surprisingly, the gym used a scentless soap. I used them all twice, lingering, lathering. Getting out of the shower, I dried off and wrapped myself in a towel. I brushed my teeth, flossed, and since I was celebrating feeling human again, I sprayed a little cologne. I aimed the bottle somewhere between my lower neck and upper chest, closed my eyes, and pressed firmly on the top of the sprayer. I felt the mist against my skin, but was suddenly aware of a serious neurological disconnect. That moment was like when you think there's one more stare than there actually is. Like when you push a door that's meant to be pulled. It's a moment where your senses and reality betray your expectations, and for that split second, you can't be sure of anything. In that moment, with the bottle held at arm's length away from me, I realized I hadn't smelled the cologne at all. I opened my eyes and sprayed it directly into my face, inhaling deeply through my nose. Nothing. And that's when it all flashed through my mind, a vignette of miserable moments from the last week. My cooking that wasn't bland, that wine it wasn't light. I had been grumpy for days. Van life likely isn't even that tiresome. The nights have not actually been that cold, and almost certainly my clothes stank at least a little. My distorted sensory perception and physical fatigue had been feeding into the false reality that I wasn't cut out for this, and that life is difficult and without comfort. I thought van life was wearing on me, and that the transition was taking its toll, but the truth was, I was sick. Really sick. And to make matters worse, I'd lost my taste and smell. I'll be damned, I immediately laughed as I put down the cologne, wide eyes accompanying a dropped jaw with a bigger smile than I'd had in weeks. I tried to think of the last thing I had tasted or smelled. 
It was that pound cake, the weed, the most delicious purple decadent strain I had ever smelled. And right after that, two of my senses had collapsed as if they had declared they could die now after smelling such a sweet scent. I'll always happily accept understanding over liking what message the clarity brings, and this was no exception. It all makes sense. I shook my head in disbelief as the truth sank in. I have COVID. 